When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. In the 12th century, cities like Lübeck, Hamburg, Bremen, Danzig, and others along the Baltic and the North Sea coast experienced an increase in maritime trade. And of course, wherever there are valuables for the taking, there were pirates. To help address the issue, Lübeck and Hamburg created the Hanseatic League in 1241. Also commonly called Hansa, the term means fellowship or community. More of a mercantile alliance than a city-by-city effort, the League both supervised maritime trade and helped to safeguard ships against pirates. By 1300, 19 major ports had joined. Some countries, like Denmark, were against Hansa and the mercantile monopoly the League had become. The opposing country's solution was to create smaller brethren organizations. One such group of freebooters, the Vitalenbruder or Victual Brothers, consisting of mercenaries and pirates, had been hired to bring food provisions to Stockholm. In the 1390s, the Danes had waged an assault on the city in an attempt to capture and control it. In response, two Hanseatic cities in Mecklenburg put out a call for freebooters. At their own expense, the Victual brothers would harass and plunder ships from Denmark and Norway. Thus began the Privateers' War. But seeing as the applicants lining up for a license had seedy reputations, the conflict seemed more like pirates versus pirates. The Victual brothers frequently targeted ports outside of Mecklenburg that belonged to the Hansa. Lübeck became a favorite target, although the brothers attacked any ship in the Baltic they pleased. While they might have government allies, their actions showed that they were first and foremost pirates by nature. One of the brothers' vessels made the mistake of attacking a German ship in 1391. The German sailors bested the pirates and stuffed them into barrels with just their heads sticking out of the top. Once the ship reached the port in Stralsund, the men were carted off and beheaded. Other Victual Brother pirates pressed on, eventually becoming so successful that trading in the Baltic nearly came to a standstill. Finally, a treaty was signed in May of 1395, and the Victual Brothers were ordered to leave the Baltic by that July. It won't surprise you to learn that the brothers had no intention of giving up piracy, though. They just split into smaller groups and operated from their new capital on the island of Helgeland. 
The location provided easy access to passing ships. Local chieftains along the eastern coast of Friesland hired the pirates for their conflicts and campaigns. From this new brotherhood, Klaus Stortebecker became legendary in German folklore. Sometime around 1401, the Hansa set out a fleet of ships to capture and destroy Klaus's base. For three days, the battle raged on. Men took to crossbows, axes, swords, and hand-to-hand combat. At last, Klaus's ship, Sea Tiger, was captured by the captain aboard the Die Bunte Kuh, which oddly translates to the colorful cow. Klaus and 72 of his crew were taken to Hamburg, where he negotiated a pardon, not for himself, but for any of his crewmen that he could walk past after the executioner cut off his head. The legend says that headless Klaus stumbled past 11 men. If there's any truth to Klaus's end or not, it makes us wonder why we have always envisioned pirates as the lone rogue wolves of the sea. After all, most wolves hunt in packs. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to Pirates. Pirate legends, we glorify them. Massive ships with brave captains traveling the seas in search of fortune. The golden age of piracy even sounds somewhat romantic. But peel back the legends, and the history underneath is a lot more brutal. Historians often debate just how long the golden age of piracy lasted. Some argue it lasted only 10 years, from 1715 to 1725. Others claim it occurred between 1714 and 1730, while still more say that the exact start and end date is rather subjective. Since pirates roamed the seas hundreds of years before the golden age of piracy, the definition is generally traced back to the use of privateers during conflicts in the Caribbean throughout the late 1600s and early 1700s. The Treaty of Utrecht in 1713 ended the livelihoods of many seamen who had come to places like Port Royal, Jamaica, to earn a profitable living as what was essentially a sanctioned pirate for hire. Upwards of 6,000 privateers previously working with the government found themselves either out of work or in a position where they had to return to their former employment aboard slave, merchant, or navy ships with low pay and often deplorable conditions. Seaports in British and colonial territories teemed with unemployed seamen. Others chose to continue their line of work, officially making them pirates instead of privateers. Many attacked only the French or Spanish vessels, while others were less discerning. And contributing to that rise were governments without a means to enforce anti-piracy laws. Most Caribbean pirates hailed from England, but not all of them. Pirates came from Africa, Scotland, Ireland, and other places around the world. Regardless of their heritage, they formed a common bond, even working together. Many even came to another pirate's aid. We might think of them as lawless, but pirate crews formed highly democratic communities and hierarchies. Their captains were not tyrants. Crewmen could, and did, vote them out of power. Plunder was divided fairly, and the crew had a say in the captain's decision process. Democracy at sea granted them far better protection than their employers or governments offered on land. Some pirates from the Bahamas even provided disability benefits to crew members. Something more than booze, adventure, and treasure attracted sailors to life as a pirate. It certainly wasn't the picture governments painted for them. Bloodthirsty murderers, rapists, and thieves out there only for themselves, who also relished in torturing women and children just for fun. While some individuals certainly did fit that description, other stories were simply exaggerated. Yet no matter what government officials said, the public regarded pirates as a form of folk hero, even during the golden age of piracy. So, aside from the money, the booze, the adventure, and the escape from poor working condition, there's another reason. 
Rebellion Pirates took a social and political stand against injustices. When Queen Anne died, for example, and her brother was refused the throne because he was Catholic, pirates like Benjamin Hornigold and Edward Teach remained loyal to the House of Stuart and rebelled against King George. It's important to remember that most pirates came from poor families, working jobs that had little chance of paying off. These men and women had nothing to lose and everything to gain. Although there were pirates who valued the lifestyle above all else. In 1722, for example, pirate Joseph Mansfield once said that he loved drinking and a lazy life more than he valued any treasure. The men and women who were active during the golden age of piracy left an indelible mark on history, many becoming larger-than-life legends. When we think of pirates today, popular names like Edward Teach, Sam Bellamy, and Steed Bonnet come to mind, as well as the trio of Calico Jack, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. And each of these pirates was powerful in their own right. They captained or served aboard flagships that could hold their own against any man of war. And with so many of them commanding what amounted to entire naval fleets, it seems as though they would see each other as direct competition. Yet, as it turns out, these very capable individuals and crews came to form a tighter bond. Not only did they know each other, but they also created a community, referred to as the Pirate Republic. Pirates raided ships for more than just gold. Honestly, they would plunder anything of value. Of course, stolen goods required buyers who didn't ask a lot of questions. Port Royal and Martinique had once been prime locations to sell, but by the Golden Age, the ports began to crack down on pirates and their buyers. Small colonies short on supplies sometimes looked the other way, but larger colonial ports prohibited and enforced laws preventing the sale of stolen goods. This forced the buyers and pirates to meet at prearranged locations to do their business. The easiest solution for the pirates was to find a port city they operated. They found the perfect spot in Nassau, on the island of New Providence. In the late 17th century, England and Spain engaged in a conflict over salvaging wrecked ships in the area. Spain raided the then-British-controlled Bahamas. Naturally, the British retaliated with their own privateers against Spain. The hostilities resulted in burning the settlement to the ground. The mostly abandoned area attracted new settlers willing to rebuild, including English privateers. By 1694, the colonists established Nassau as the capital. As we learned earlier, privateers found themselves without a job after the Treaty of Utrecht was signed. Afterward, both the Spanish and French ignored the treaty and raided Nassau in the early 18th century, and the settlement was abandoned once more. In 1715, though, a fleet of Spanish treasure ships made their way home after a lengthy time at sea. On June 30th, as they sailed through the channel between Florida and the Grand Bahamas, they encountered a hurricane. The 100-mile-per-hour winds tore the sails and the 50-foot waves slammed the ships into the jagged reefs off the Florida coast. Only one ship survived. Ten others sank, along with an immense treasure of silk, coins, ingots, and jewels. When the hurricane subsided, nearly a thousand corpses washed ashore. Approximately 7 million pesos worth of treasure lay in shallow water. Everyone from the Spanish to the Navy to the pirates converged on the area. Port Royal's governor hired privateer Henry Jennings to bring back whatever he could. Jennings and his men attacked a Spanish garrison and seized nearly 60,000 pieces of eight. Spain left the area in 1716, leaving behind a significant amount of treasure. Jennings and his men packed up their treasure and left. While the pirates raked in considerable sums, spending them proved a bit more difficult. 
They couldn't spend them in Port Royal, but NASA on New Providence provided the perfect alternative. Benjamin Hornigold and Edward Teach had already established themselves in the settlement. Hornigold had a hundred men and a well-armed sloop in the harbor, asserting an unchecked, if not temporary, authority over the settlement. Pirates nearly outnumbered other settlers, and they walked freely through the streets as though the town belonged to them. As more pirates converged, their dominance in Nassau increased. The pirates began to refer to themselves as the Flying Gang. Those who didn't want to join left for Jamaica. Fresh off his treasure hunt in Florida, Jennings and his men arrived in Nassau. He stole a small Spanish sloop belonging to Hornigold, challenging the status quo. As it turned out, the two men had a long history of rivalry. Hornigold had to do something to prove his worth or risk losing control. So he took Edward Teach and 200 men on his 10-gun sloop through the Florida Straits and around Cuba during the spring of 1716, where the crew captured several valuable prizes. Hornigold recruited a few other pirate captains, including Sam Bellamy and an unlikely ally, French Captain Olivier Labousse. They returned to Nassau only to discover that the pirate community had substantially increased. The population there of pirates and illegal traders caught the attention of Virginia's governor, who complained to England that pirates had taken control of the Bahamas. And as time went on, streams of outcasts found their way to Nassau, from farmers to runaway slaves. Life among the pirates provided them with freedoms and a sense of community that they didn't have back in the colonies. By 1717, most of the names that we're familiar with called Nassau home, though not all of them belonged to the Flying Gang. And although Jennings and Hornigold remained enemies, the island provided room enough for both leaders. New Providence had become a pirate's paradise. Sources indicate that they might have taken counsel with each other and may have formed an organized and structured community, living what we might call governing by pirate code. But utopia is just an illusion, and all good things, as they say, must come to an end. Word reached England's King George I that the Caribbean had become so infested with pirates that the future of trading, even into the American colonies, had become endangered. To deal with the pirates and those trading with them, the king signed a proclamation in September of 1717. Pirates had until the following September to surrender to authorities. However, instead of punishment, they would receive a pardon as long as they gave up piracy for good. After one year, England would offer a bounty for the capture of pirate officers. And of course, military force would be used against all pirates. The proclamation reached New Providence in December. As you might imagine, the letter divided the pirates into two different camps. Those who favored taking the pardon, like Jennings and Hornigold, and those who were against it, like Charles Vane. Those who accepted flew the Union Jack on top of Fort Nassau to signify submission. Vane wasn't alone in his refusal to submit. Jack Rackham and Edward England, among others, didn't see themselves as outlaws. Although their individual reasons varied, they basically saw themselves as rebels. They removed the Union Jack, replacing it with a death's head flag. Both sides held counsel, but were unable to agree on the pardon. Those opposed mostly packed up and left. And when the HMS Phoenix arrived in February of 1718, many of the pirates welcomed the ship much to the captain's surprise. Regardless of where they stood on the king's offer, Hornigold had counseled them to take the pardon and buy some time. They could always return to piracy later. 
The Phoenix returned to New York with the names of over 200 pirates willing to take the pardon. But while the Phoenix had been there in port, Charles Vane had been busy assembling a crew. Not long after the Phoenix left, his reign of terror began. Not only did he plunder ships, but he also brutalized their crews. In response, Britain named a new governor in the Bahamas to help bring the golden age of piracy to an end. Newly appointed Woods Rogers had once successfully captained a privateering crew, providing them with fair treatment, good food, and medical care. During his service, he also managed to capture a Manila galleon, a feat that only four other ships in three centuries had ever accomplished. Described as courageous and deeply devoted to king and country, Woods Rogers was eager to devote himself to the task. Three Navy warships escorted the British fleet to New Providence on the evening of July 26, 1718. The squadron anchored just outside the harbor. Even under the cloak of darkness, the pirates knew the ships were there. The arrival took Charles Vane by surprise. Although he had added his name to the people on the pardon list, he had no desire to honor it. Over the last few days, he and his crew had prepared his ship to leave New Providence and set sail for Brazil. But now, Roger's fleet blocked his exit. He couldn't fight his way out, but he did have a plan of escape. That night, the crew took a French ship filled with combustibles. They rolled the guns to their gun holes and filled them with cannonballs and gunpowder. The men slathered the deck and rigging with tar. And then, they set sail. Vane and the rest of the crew sailed out in a smaller sloop behind them. The crew aboard the French vessel set their ship on fire. When they drew closer to the anchored British fleet, they jumped overboard, hoping their fiery ship would collide with one of the Navy's vessels. The men aboard two of the British ships, the Rose and the Shark, scrambled to cut the anchor lines and raise their sails. The Navy ships moved just in time, nearly colliding with the French ships as the cannons and gunpowder exploded. Charles Vane sailed straight out of the harbor, black flag flying in the wind. After outrunning Roger's ship, he set off a single cannon shot in defiance. The next day, the new governor took control of New Providence. Later, he hired Hornigold to hunt down Vane. In 1721, Charles Vane was hanged for piracy. The remaining pirates who had once served with each other once more stood on two different and opposing sides, the hunted and the hunters. The golden age of piracy and the pirate community that had filled it had finally come to an end. The island of New Providence had provided the pirates with a distinct vantage point in which to see arriving ships, and now it served Woods Rogers. He had the island fortified, including a barricade around the fort, and armed militia watched for surprise attacks. In a short time, he'd done more to curb piracy in the Caribbean than anyone else before, and he remained staunchly devoted to England in a time where many British colony governors were lining their pockets. Instead, Rogers used some of his own money to fund the efforts, believing in the greater cause. Things didn't run smoothly for him, though. The size of his crew, relatively small to start with, grew smaller still as the men succumbed to a variety of tropical diseases. Despite his hard work and his good results, England ignored his repeated requests for extra men and funding. Governors from the colonies wrote to England. Each stated their concern that without proper support, the pirates would overtake New Providence and set up camp once more. Even Vane sent Rogers a letter, vowing to return and take back the island. Determined and eternally loyal, Rogers carried on, even without support from the crown. 
but his devotion would be his downfall. He worked until his health suffered. Exhausted, ill, and bankrupt, he finally returned to England, hoping to start over. In his place, the Crown sent George Fenney to govern the Bahamas. Back in England, Rogers received no thanks, no gratitude, and no assistance for his work. Instead, he was thrown into debtor's prison. The new governor of the Bahamas, Fenney, didn't subscribe to his predecessor's honesty and became corrupt. And sometime in the late 1720s, the Crown reappointed Woods Rogers to govern the Bahamas in his place. Once he returned, he eradicated the pervasive corruption in the colony. He continued his work to wipe away the pirate legacy and replace it with honest business and a booming economy. And the best part of all? He accomplished all of that in part by hiring some of the very same people he'd been sent to get rid of. Pirates. The centerpiece of the golden age of piracy in the minds of many people today is their community at Nassau. It was where they lived out the freedoms they fought so hard to acquire, where they rested, and where they planned for the future. But it wasn't the only place for pirates. In fact, my crewmate, Ali Steed, has one more location to discuss with you. And if you stick around through this brief sponsor break, she'll tell you all about it. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, elevate your adventure by transforming your vehicle into a reliable Wi-Fi hotspot. Connect up to 10 devices up to 50 feet away from your vehicle, making it ideal for camping and road trips. Don't miss out on the fun. Embark on your next adventure today. Visit att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to check if you're eligible for a free trial. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. While the Pirate Republic in New Providence is fairly well documented, there's another pirate utopia nearly lost to history. Although there's much debate on exactly how much of the story happened, the roots appear based on some facts. According to Captain Charles Johnson, the author of the 1724 book, A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates, there was once a captain, James Mission. Mission was a restless soul by nature. When his father wanted him to join the Musketeers, he chose a life at sea instead, hoping to satisfy his adventurous spirit. He found a spot on a French privateering ship called the Victoire. 
Life at sea proved to be even more than he dreamed of, and Mission devoted himself to learning everything about life aboard a ship. At some point in the journey, the ship docked at Naples. With the captain's permission, the pious Mission traveled to Rome. What he saw there disheartened him. The immoral behaviors of the local clergy deeply shook his faith. A priest named Caraccioli confirmed Mission's worst fears, telling the young traveler that organized religion served as a means to keep the public under control. Mission asked the priest to join him on the ship, and without hesitating, Caraccioli agreed. The two became fast friends and captured many treasures together. When the Victoire's captain died in battle, the crew voted Mission as their captain and Caraccioli for their lieutenant. During their travels, the crew converted to the former priest's ideals, namely that all men were equal regardless of race and that they had a right to absolute freedom from both the chains of religion and the secular government. There should be no social status and no slavery. In fact, they wouldn't even speak the word. Caraccioli suggested that they sail in defiance of any government. From then on, they would have no grudges, only brotherly love and equality. The crew cheered and set sail across the sea, taking treasures from any merchant ship they found along the way. The men took great care to be as respectful as possible to the captains and crew of the ships they plundered. They rescued mistreated sailors and declared those aboard slave ships free often taking on both as crewmates. Eventually, they found their way to the northern tip of Madagascar and decided to establish a camp. The island they chose had an excellent harbor and the area provided plenty of fresh water and good soil for farming. The men set to work building a settlement they named Libertalia. While some of the men built forts and homes, others searched for food. These hunters encountered a native man they befriended and gifted with an ax. As time went on, pirate captain Thomas II came upon the settlement he and his crew became so impressed that they joined the establishment. As more time passed, the colony only grew. The men married local women and started families of their own. Every member in Libertalia equally shared in the work and the prizes taken from merchant ships. They raided while at sea. Mission commanded ships with French crews and two commanded those aboard English vessels. The colony eventually formed a government based on fairness and equity. They chose to elect a conservator who would serve for no more than three years. The village, of course, appointed mission. While it's true that Thomas II was a real pirate, the legend's timeline may be a bit more fabrication than fact. Two died by the end of the 17th century, and by the author's own account, some of the story's timeline happened after his death. Fact or fiction, the utopian town did not survive. While Tzu was away, natives ambushed the colony in the middle of the night, killing many of the settlers, including Karachali. Mission and some of the crew managed to escape and find two. After hearing what had happened, two suggested that Mission head to the Americas. Not long after the men parted ways, Mission's ship sank in a storm with no survivors. And while two ships arrived, he later died in battle. Skeptics point out that the story exists only in Johnson's book. They point to the striking resemblances to fictional pirate narratives, including the novel Robinson Crusoe. Many experts believe that Captain Charles Johnson was actually a pseudonym for Daniel Defoe, the novel's author. And yet, there are some historically correct details. There was a settlement of pirates in Madagascar, and we know that because Woods Rogers provided the novelist with accurate details about the life of pirates. And although Libertalia may have been fiction, New Providence serves as a real-life example that pirates once set up their own community, worked together, and formed a government. Brothers, as they say, to the bitter end.
Pirates was executive produced by Aaron Mankey and narrated by Aaron Mankey and Alexandra Steed. Writing for this season was provided by Michelle Muto with research by Alexandra Steed and Sam Alberti. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about this and other shows from Grim and Mild and iHeartRadio, visit GrimAndMild.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.